Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 213 for April 21st, 2021. I'm your host, Chris Webster. Today we talk about critical thinking when reading social media posts, dealing with that old-timey mentality, and counting is hard. So get your drone out of my airspace because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Heather in California. Hi, everyone. And Stephen in Calgary. Hello. All right. So we got a number of things that we at least plan to talk about today. We'll see how many things that we get to. But the first one I feel like we should mention involves last week's episode in which I wasn't on it. I was down in Mexico and Heather and See what happens. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Heather and Doug and Steve and Bill were all on the show and they talked about the merits of getting a PhD in CRM. So since this isn't live, if you haven't heard that, I would highly suggest doing one of two things, either pausing and going and listening to that episode or checking out Facebook. If you happen to be on Facebook, go to the Archaea Field Text Group. And if you're not in there, search for it. I'll let you in and check out the comments on both the link to the podcast that I put in there, the full link. But more importantly, the audiogram clip, which we've started to create, which is usually a 30 to maximum 60 second long clip with the words coming up on the screen. That is just something that we pulled out in the editing process that we feel would either spark conversation or really has some sort of bearing on the show, right? Like, like has some sort of synopsis of what the show is going to be about. And apparently we did a good job because it sparked a lot of conversation. And again, the topics were basically the topic was, should you get a CRM? Should you get a PhD if you plan on staying in CRM or if you're already in CRM or if you're going into CRM? Kind Kind of, of, kind of. Yeah. I'll I'll wait. (laughs) I have my take on what I think, what I think the talk was more about, but yes, go ahead. Indeed. Well, full disclosure, I haven't even heard the episode. I've heard parts of it because (laughs) my wife edited the episode and she pulled out the clip and I've been following along on the comments on Facebook. I haven't even, I mean, I just haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. I'm usually about a month or so behind on, uh, on our own shows. I listen to everything, but it's usually not in real time. So given that information, Heather, why don't you just, uh, first give us a, a really brief, like one sentence. What do you think the show was about? And let's talk about the merits of commenting on a Facebook post. Okay. It was one sentence, Chris, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you asking? So I would, (laughs) now I'm insulted that you're laughing a long time, but that's okay. (laughs) No. The intention, it was inspired by a documentary that I had seen, and it was twofold. Treatment of doctoral students by academia and the concept of doctoral students not going into academia after they earn their PhD and going Mm -hmm. into industry. And so it actually... For me personally, although I we went on different tangents and maybe it meant something different for the other co-hosts, but for me personally, I see a tremendous value for PhDs in CRM. I think they absolutely have a role mm-hmm. in CRM. What my main focus of that podcast was, which is a subject that's come up quite a bit in our in our podcast before, is academia's role 
in preparing PhDs to go into industry, to have that choice of being able to be prepared or set up for success to go into Mm -hmm. industry. And I understand our industry, obviously, CRM. So I understand that, you know, that's not really the sole purpose of getting a, a PhD or terminal degree. But there are aspects of academia that are not set up to assist PhDs in going into a wide variety of fields. And so that was the main topic was what can academia do to at least make it a little bit more approachable or yeah, uh, for, for a PhD to go into CRM. And I do believe that academia, they are providing a service. They have a product and it is their job to prepare those that are their customers, which are the doctoral students, but they're not always treated that way, to prepare them for going into whatever area they decide to utilize their PhD, their knowledge, their abilities in. And it shouldn't be just solely focused on the academic route. And it sh- there should be a little bit of more preparation to go into the CRM route. So that's your one sentence, Chris. <laughs> uh, one paragraph. I'll take a paragraph or a, okay. a or or a, a one pager. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. No, I I certainly have my own thoughts on this, but um, perhaps you know we'll, we'll spend this segment on it. And if we have time, I'll maybe discuss those. But I didn't want to have this this episode all over again, so I'll hold off a little bit. But really, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was. In relation to that, so we, again, we put up a clip, and I didn't even have the the basic synopsis of the episode, right? Right when I just said it earlier, and and Heather, you rightly so kind of corrected me and told me, well, actually, it was really about this. And of course, we put up a, a title of the episode. We put up show notes, which probably very few people clicked into and read, to be honest. Not even just the show notes, and then also we put up a that clip that we had that was really just, you know, literally one sentence that I think, Heather, I think you were speaking that sentence, but we put up one clip and that was it. That sparked off so much conversation mm-hmm. about how uh, PhDs mm-hmm. have basically no place in CRM. Uh, the inevitable, I had to teach a PhD how to do this comment was made several yeah. times, which yeah. is completely pointless. And mm-hmm. it just descended into chaos, including from some notable people, former guests on the show, like Dr. Tom King. <laughs> he also didn't listen to the episode <laughs> and equally responded to the clip. So it doesn't matter what yeah. level of education you have or where you are in your career. You can still be subject to basically not critically thinking about something and just reacting to a headline, which is essentially what everybody was doing. And I think that's more of a larger commentary on our society. but. In reflecting on some of the comments that I'd seen on there, and and there were times, you know, both of us were trying to bring it back to center and encourage mm-hmm. people to please listen to podcasts. And one one of the commenters in particular was is a current PhD student, and yeah. he was saying, "I don't know after after listening to this or reading or no, he said reading these comments after reading these comments, I don't know if I'd want to go into CRM and I'm really starting to question everything, you know, kind of thing that was, I'm paraphrasing, but, and, you know, I responded to him and said, please listen to podcasts because in actuality, you know, there, we talk about the tremendous value that PhDs do have in CRM and that this is meant to encourage more CRMs and, and trying to, you know, have a solution-based conversation about how do we prepare PhDs, put them in a position to succeed in CRM because they do have a role. So, you know, in reflecting that, I was thinking today, I said, you know what, we should have put some kind of like, I don't know, what what do you put it, like disclaimer on it? No PhDs (laughs) were harmed during the broadcast of this (laughs) podcast or or. Just so you know, we love PhDs, you know, whatever. I yeah. thought, you know, it's it's funny how people, you know, a lot of times they, they just have their own tapes in their heads, so to speak. And and people, you know, I had I had a, a mentor early on in my life that, you know, he looked at directly in, you know, directly in my eyes and said, you are not. I said, I'm listening. I'm listening because you're not listening. You're waiting to talk. And I think that happens a lot on social media. People do not really listen, whatever it is, the podcast, mm-hmm. the other people's comment, other people commenting. All they're doing is waiting to put their 
you know, promote their agenda, their, their yeah. concept, their idea, even though it may have absolutely nothing to do with anything that's going on. It has something very tent, like 5%. And yeah, it's too bad, but I think, you know, it's good. It gets conversation going, but unfortunately, like you said, it kind of went down this route of having this, you know, animosity between field and, you know, CRM and academics, but I think it was more field and desk. That that was more because we hear the same thing where you have, you know, the people in the field comparing complain about people that, you know, managers that are mainly do the desktop mm-hmm. work, not having a feel or an understanding for what they do in the field, that kind of thing. And, you know, we've talked about this at nauseum. But yeah, I think it was just a lot of hurt people saying hurtful things. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Steven. Well, I wasn't really listening to Heather. I was just kind of waiting to talk. But <laughs> it, it does, and, and you kind of hit at this towards the end there, Heather, but it does make me think that there, there's a lot of insecurity mm-hmm. within CRM, people working in CRM, in that, mm-hmm. like, if, you know, like the, the people who are primarily field technicians and don't have a master's are always like, no, we're, we're real archaeologists, blah, blah, blah. And, and be, you know, and, and trying to, you know, bolster their perception that like they're the real archaeologists and, and, and as, as a reaction to the secretary of interior uh, qualifications, I'm not saying you're not real archaeologists, although Chris will no doubt make a 20 second clip of this. And, and <laughs> so everybody's going to be mad at me. This will be the turn, clip for the episode. Steven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There we go. And, and 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 same sort of thing. Like you know, people with masters, but not but not the doctorates. They're like uh, you know, like well, you know, it's not so great having a PhD because I don't have a PhD, and 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 you know, like and I, I once had to work with a PhD, and he was so terrible, and blah blah blah, and yeah. and, and and I feel like we're, we're always in that constant reinforcement of. Kind, kind of like making our own case, you know, like the uh, education level, the experience level for ourselves that kind of puts us forward as not necessarily the one true archaeologist, but like, you know, like we're okay. We're good at this. We're, we're good archaeologists, even if I don't have a master's or a PhD. And, and people who have that, you know, like you might think that they're good, but they're not good. And I, I feel like that's kind of a I don't know. I, I feel like I see that a lot, that uh, we tend to split ourselves off from other roles. Like like you were talking, like the, the office people, the lab people versus field people. And and it's uh, kind of reactionary. And, and really, it's we need to just come, come to grips with there are a lot of different roles for a lot of different types of archaeologists who have yeah. a lot of different education levels. And it's all archaeology, and it's all part of the same system. It's all part of the same process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my one comment that I have on this, and my wife and I actually talked about it after she was done editing the episode. She was, she had some thoughts on it. We always have discussions when one of us edits an episode about something. And my one comment on this really is about the way that we see this this field. It's different than it seems like other dis- disciplines, right? So you've basically got essentially three educational levels, right? Maybe four, if you want to include the, the person who started working in the early eighties, doesn't really have a degree at all, or maybe has one in something completely different, but has like 25 years of CRM experience. You actually see that in California quite a bit, but if you're talking about education, you've got your people who have an undergraduate degree. You've got your people who have a master's degree and your people who have a PhD. And I would never in a million years, expect a PhD program to teach someone how to transect, to teach someone how to lay out a one by one, as the person on Facebook said, to teach someone even how to use a compass. First off, if you're in CRM and you're getting a PhD, I would expect you to already know those things, right? I would expect you to have come up the ranks. You got your undergrad, you went to field school, you maybe did some work, maybe then you did your master's, maybe you did some more work, then you went back for your PhD and now you're doing more stuff, right? So I would expect you in the grand progression of any industry, any business that has like, you know, apprenticeship through master type levels, except we don't really call it that. 
I would expect you to learn those things along the way. Now, in some in some cases, people do go undergrad, master's, PhD, because maybe they like school, they have an unlimited amount of money. I don't know what the case is. And if you choose to go into CRM at that point, well, you better be willing to pay your dues. And, you know, case in point, I'm really trying hard because he's awesome. But Paul, my co-host on the Architect podcast, we've talked about this on the air before. He got his PhD in archaeology over 20 years ago. And then because of children and career and things like that, he basically stepped back from archaeology and went into an IT career. <laughs> so he's kept a toe in archaeology. He's kept his interest in it. You know, he's in the the AIA in New York and, and done a bunch of other things. But he is basically transitioning from that IT career this summer and he wants to get back into CRM. He's not looking for a PI job. He's a PhD who's like 50, right? He's right. he's not looking for a PI job. He's not looking for a project manager job. He wants to field tech. And I want to hire him as a field tech because I know he's a great learner and he will just pick this stuff up like like nothing. But I'm, I'm not hiring him as a PhD. If I wanted somebody to write proposals and to maybe write some grants and to do some other stuff, some research design, stuff like that, maybe I'd hire him for that. Right. But I'm certainly not going to, you know, I'm not hiring him for his PhD, although that is one of the degree qualifications that could qualify him for this job, weirdly enough. So you know, right. we got to take those things, we got to take those little things out of it and just realize what the individual roles really are for. If you have a PhD working as a field tech, well, treat them as a field tech. You know, do you teach any other field tech the ropes? Teach them as well and and stop hiring yeah. PhDs as field techs unless they're trying to get experience like that. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think the, as far as setting up, what can academias do to set up PhDs? And I, you know, I think no time to go over this all over again, but I think in short, there is a different way of looking at research. So you have, you know, in, in academia, many times you have, you know, people that stay in academia, they, they work mm-hmm. on one site or, or a few sites that all kind of have the same basic characteristics. And so it, it, it's terrific because it gives you such a focused, they're able to see the details where others wouldn't because they've been looking at this for a long time. But on the other side, when you go into CRM, you're looking at lots of different sites. I mean, you could be, you know, you're all over, not only you could be all over state, you could be all over a region. And so you, and you have to understand the site quickly. And so it's a different way of looking at excavation it's a different way of looking at research design it's a different way of looking at you know how you perform the excavation how you analyze and and then of course the recommendations moving forward that's something that you know academics don't have to deal with they don't have to deal with the regulatory side right. or the recommendations moving forward now that is something you can learn later on but i do think yeah. that understanding that there's different ways of of looking at archaeology and performing archaeology is something that could be in a more nebulous sense, could be taught in academia. It, it could be a high level discussion, but it needs to at least be introduced because unfortunately, a lot of times when PhDs do come in or they try to come in, or if they're sitting in the academic world, there's this separation between the two that academics do actual real archaeology where CRM does not. They're quickly just trying to get the work done. And that's not, it's not true. It may have been true in the past, perhaps, but it's really not true for good, good CRM firms and good CRM professionals now. And so mm-hmm. twofold, prepare people to at least understand that there's a different way to look at it and also to not vilify CRM. Because when you vilify yeah. CRM and you set up that that notion in people's heads, they're not going to want to go into CRM. And we need more people, more PhDs in CRM. And so that was the kind of the crux is those two things (laughs) that actually would be very simple to fix in academia. But they have to, those that are teaching, would have to get out of their own way of thinking about CRM in order to do that. And will that happen? Who knows? So get on that, Bill. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. Well, on that note, we'll have a link to the last episode or, or just go find it. It's episode 212 and, and listen to it and give us your thoughts. You can leave a comment on the website. You can you can go back and wade through the comments on Facebook or comment on Twitter if you want to, wherever you found the episode. So we are going to take a short break and come back and switch gears to 
Well, another topic, but not too far off this one. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code crmark don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by march 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly because no matter what moves you made last year TurboTax makes them count that means getting 100 back and 100 accurate taxes only from intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 213. And, you know, in reference to last segment, thanks for making it this far before you comment on the internet. So there you go. <laughs> you're, you're now free to comment on the last segment because we're switching gears. <laughs> All right. So I got a... Basically, a paragraph that was uh, kind of a rant from a friend of mine who's a CRM archaeologist, does a lot of work. Well, he's worked all over the United States, does a lot of work in California and Nevada as well. And he said, I'm going to paraphrase here in real time because I did not rewrite this, but I also want to remove some details that are, you know, we want people to be feel free to send us comments and show suggestions without basically letting people know who they are. So anyway, he said one of the people he works with had a tough time with a <laughs> old person slash tech. Now, first off, let me jump in here. I have taught lots of people that I've worked with how to use tablets, smartphones, whatever, digital recording in the field. Nine times out of 10, when I work with somebody in the field, even in 2021, well, I haven't had a chance in 2021 yet, but even in 2020, I've still had to teach somebody brand new who's never recorded digitally in the field on a tablet or on their own smartphone. So, you know, we're, we're not over the hump yet and we're still teaching people how to do this. So it's not just, quote, older people that have this problem. There is a lot of people who just are not very tech savvy who can be of virtually any age. We like to joke and say, oh, if find your nearest 23-year-old that's just out of college and they'll have them teach it. But archaeology doesn't seem to follow that trend. So you still have some people who are, you know, rocking the iPhone 5 and, and don't really use tech in the field. So maybe that's why they gravitate to archaeology. Who knows? But Anyway, this person was upset that a young person on the crew was doing slope exclusions as you're usually allowed to by whatever agency you're allowed to, not doing a bunch of extra work after hours and trying to turn the crew. The older, older person was trying to turn the crew into the usual overworked burnouts, <laughs> in his words, through the part power of condensation and bitching. The guy complained. I don't, I don't know if it was a guy or not. I just said guy. The person complained to the company's owner who then took the younger person off the project. And my friend here basically says, you know, it sounds like someone trying to give younger archaeologists the bad habits that they had learned coming in through the field. And I wouldn't even necessarily say bad habits. I would just say older habits. Things change as technology improves and, and things happen. So, you know, the, people learn to do things differently and more efficiently, and there's nothing wrong with that. But he wants to talk about, he, he suggested we do an episode on how to ease people into the new age where, in his words, safety is important and work gets done during work hours and <laughs> tips for younger people on how to deal with, with these older people, right? Or the people that are a little bit more tech adverse, I should say. And it's not just tech. It's not just tech. To give my own little spin on this, I mean, I have worked in quite a few situations, especially obviously before I became a company owner and could make these decisions on my own. But I definitely worked in quite a few situations where people are like, well, this is how we've always done it. And yeah, crew chiefs are expected to put in two, three, four hours of work after work, summarizing your notes, doing this, doing that. 
But in my case, you know, I'd be like, well, I brought a tablet and I don't need to summarize my notes because mm-hmm. here's your spreadsheet. You know, I made a thing. Here you go. This is what you asked for. And I did it in real time at work. And I had actually received pushback on that. Now that was like eight, nine years ago, but still it was, it was irritating and, and frustrating that I wasn't doing that. And Bill actually made a comment on this on our Slack chat. He's like, <laughs> he's like the, the, the typical comment, you know, I suffer for 30 years doing this thing. So you need to suffer as much as I did. It's <laughs> the, it's the common, you know, thing from the people who were experienced saying, well, you know, I was in the Navy. The same thing happened there, right? They said, well, I had to go through this. So you have to go through this, blah, 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 you know? So anyway, that's my summarizing of this topic. Steven, looks like you've got your, your hand raised and you're about to yell for me to get off your lawn. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Your digital lawn. <laughs> yeah. Get off my digital lawn. I'm recording uh, this in VR, by the way. I can see all three of my screens on a big open field. cool i mean we we joke about it i'm actually a a huge nerd so i don't uh, necessarily have a problem with um using technology despite the fact that i'm almost 50 i do think that like some of the issues or all of the issues that are uh, talked about in your friend's example are not really a technical issue it's it's not like Mm -hmm. you know no we we have to record certain things digitally in a certain way because we now have increased reporting requirements with the clients and, and the agencies and uh, the reviewers and whomever. A lot of it really strikes me as more of a professionalization issue that back in the glory days, before I was a field tech, things were a little bit faster and looser and the quality of the work ha- has greatly improved. But at the same time, we, we've also because we've matured as an industry, become more professional in that, like we have greater safety programs. We, we actually adhere to labor regulation and so forth. So like there, there were a number of things like, oh, back in the day, we, we used to do some really sketchy shit. And I, I think the industry is for is, is much better off not doing that stuff anymore. Although it does result in fewer, you know, fewer bar stories, right? Like (laughs) when I became like a field supervisor and beyond, you know, like I had one rule for the other supervisors, which is like, don't tell the field techs your field tech stories. You know, we we all have them, but the situation's changed and it's changed for the better. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff that we ended up doing probably never should have been done in the first place. Now we wouldn't stand for it. Because we are, you know, doing a better job. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is we try to minimize the amount of overwork that we do. There, there is always acceptable times of, you know, overtime and whatnot. And Heather has confessed to sleeping under her desk. And <laughs> Next to Stephen. Oh, next to, sorry. <laughs> I wouldn't fit under my bed. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say I wouldn't fit under my and, and yeah, so... <laughs> so in, in, in a certain way that, that there has been a... a change since the 90s or even especially the 80s and the 70s where you know the the goals of the job are different you know how we interact with clients Mm -hmm. is different who who the clients are has changed i I think that some people who really got into it because of that that rougher lifestyle that unprofessional lifestyle have trouble adjusting to the newer ways of doing things. And it, and it has absolutely nothing to do with technology. It, it, it is like, it, it is a lifestyle choice and they don't like where it's going. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I've one final point on this, cause I know Heather has her hand up. I feel like some of this comes from the enthusiasm that we all had as undergrads and, and p- perhaps before and definitely after um, where we just wanted to do archaeology. And it's like, we're going to go out and, and I'm going to like walk a field and possibly find artifacts and you're going to pay me for it. It's like, holy crap, mm-hmm. that, that's like a dream come true. And, <laughs> and it's really easy for people in power to leverage that enthusiasm in ways that's not good for the enthusiastic young lady. I'm going to channel Maya Angelou right now <laughs> and say, <laughs> when you know better, you do better. And if there were two things I'd like to bring out into the field every time 
we're in an excavation, we have a crew together because one of the ways, if you want to be inefficient and you want people miserable, is if, you know, that's all based on the attitude that's in the field. And that is definitely not controlled, but it's definitely can be encouraged by the crew supervisors and, you know, but by those that are in charge, starting with who you pick when you, when you bring them out into the field and then making sure that you're keeping that, that environment, the temperature of the excavation and, and making sure channeling it in the right direction in a positive way. And so every time we go out in the field, the one, two things I would say, yes, when we know better, we do better. And as good archaeologists and good professionals, we should always be striving to do better and to know more. So if you go into the field without, you know, this idea that I know, and therefore I do, rather than going into the field and saying, you know, I want to learn, I know what I know, I want to learn, I'm always open for new ways of doing things. And, you know, that's how we're going to better our discipline. But the other thing that I'd like to take in two words, be kind. Yeah, people need to be kind to each other. And that's kind of what's missing. I think sometimes, and I've seen, we've had large projects where one person, where it can go in the toilet real quick, because you have one person, one malcontent who just permeates throughout Mm -hmm. the, you know, the whole crew. If you don't control that, and that should be controlled by the crew supervisors, that is their job is to make sure that you don't have that malcontent who's seeding negativity throughout your crew and and because just on a on a business side of things it makes people very inefficient and then you're also inefficient because their attitudes are being brought down but also inefficient because they're thinking of well i was told to do it this way but maybe that's not the right way to do it after all yeah and also people need to know their place you know when you come in and, and I'll say this to look at the other side here. Yes, you have some cranky people that have been in this for a long time. <laughs> but I guarantee you they've seen a lot more than you have if you've only been in this business for a couple of years. And so you need to know your place. Everybody needs to walk in and understand who's in charge. And if it's not them, to know what their role is on that crew. And they need to respect the people that are in charge. And then secondly, if you have somebody who has knowledge, maybe it's not the way you would do things, but you know, when you, when you talk to people and you ask questions about themselves, that's when you get that you know, interaction of people sharing and the positivity is when you really do act like you care, hopefully because you do, about other people's experiences. I mean, when you're walking in and you're acting like you know everything, it's very rarely because you know everything. It's because you're insecure. (laughs) And so, you know, I just, to me, one of the biggest things of creating a crew, I don't just slap people together when I'm creating crew. It's important to me to have the right people out there, not, not just with knowledge and ability, but also with attitude. Attitude is huge. And I've seen it sink a ship and I've seen it get a crew through the most difficult situations. So that's my take. Yeah. And at the very end of uh, my friend's suggestion here, he was, he's like, how do we deal with people that come in like that? I'm going to qualify it and say, well, okay, the person we're talking about here is somebody that let's say you're a crew chief, you're, you're leading a crew because maybe you work for that company. This, this happens all the time, by the way, you're full-time with the company, or maybe you've worked with that particular company for a while and you're a crew chief by whatever virtue makes you a crew chief at that company. Right? Well, companies will also just hire a number of people for a project. And there's every likelihood that you're going to be a crew chief and you're going to have on your crew somebody who has many more years of experience than you do. Maybe they've been a crew chief in Mm -hmm. the past. Maybe they haven't. Doesn't really matter. But the two things you got to really realize and do in order to, I guess, deal with a person like that, same thing thing you, you would deal with somebody who's completely green, right? You have certain ways that you should deal with them as well. But as a leader... You got to look at people's strengths. You know, this Mm -hmm. person might be old, jaded, cantankerous. Who knows, right? Maybe they're super helpful, but typically they're old, jaded, and cantankerous. They've been archaeologists for 20 years. What else are you going to be? So, but they have strengths too. Maybe they just 
are super knowledgeable on local projectile points or historic ceramics or something like that, you got to kind of brush off the other things that might be about their personality that, that you don't like, unless like Heather said, they are taking down the crew. Then you got to address that and deal with it as a leader, but find their strengths and use their strengths to the best of your ability, because that's your job as a leader is to pull in all those strengths from the people working for you and accomplish the job. And then the second thing I would say is, if you are bringing in some sort of new methodology, new to them anyway, or if you're bringing in some sort of, you know, like slope, slope exclusion procedure, like my friend mentions here, back that up with paperwork, I should say. I mean, I hate to say paperwork, but back that up with the regulations. If the Forest Service or whoever you're working for says you can do slope exclusion over 30%, then back that up, right? Say this is what the project scope of work says. This is what we're doing take it up with the leadership. <laughs> I mean, basically come, come armed with information and don't just say it's my way or the highway. You know, we right. are in a scientific field and you got to kind of back that up. I mean, aside from, yeah, man, paperwork. Ooh. <laughs> I knew it. When I was a um, field supervisor and, you know, I would, I would often, I mean, cause you know, the field techs, you know, a lot of times they just got out of college and they're really smart. And uh, cause we're all kind of smart. And they, they would be like, well, you know, what if we did it this way? Or what, you know, yeah. why don't we do it this way or that way or this other thing? And and the, the way that I, I would always frame it is that there's, there's a lot of different ways of doing this, but this is how we're going to do it. You know, like we, we can only do one. Yeah. And, and as the supervisor, the person who set the, you know, the research plan, you know, I get to make that call. That, that is my role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which isn't like, I mean, the way I described it is kind of dismissive, but it's not really necessarily dismissive because you can like actually consider what they said and be like, well, you know, that's an interesting idea. However, I think since we're already halfway through the project, changing the <laughs> interval is not necessarily the best plan. No. Yeah. And, you know, and, 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 but just, just point out, it's like, mm -hmm. it, is, it is my job as the crew chief or supervisor or PI to make that call. Yeah. And we can't do it every single way at once. Um, right. And, and I, I never had pushback on that. Never. Yeah. My comment was that, because I think we've been focusing a lot on cantankerous old archaeologists that have been in this for a long time, I would say <laughs> that I have had as many, if not more, malcontents from younger archaeologists that have not been in it long enough to really have an, an idea. And, I'm, and this is, I'm not an old cantankerous no matter what Chris or Steven says. I'm not one of the bankers. I was interested. Chris is like 20 years and like 20 years. Those pups. <laughs> so, but I, you know, I just, just be mindful and be kind. Yeah. Yeah. Cantankerous and malcontents are, are not limited to certain age ranges. Indeed. Indeed. I think there's probably the beginning and close to probably the end of your career when you get more cantankerous, right? Because in the beginning, you feel like you've been told a lie and it's not the way you yes. expected it to be. And in the end, you know the truth and that's even worse. Yes. So yep. somewhere in the middle, you're happy. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, end this and switch gears one more time for our resident cantankerous malcontent to rant for a final segment. Back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba. 
Welcome back to the third and different segment of the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 213. <laughs> and we are shifting gears yet again in this sort of potpourri episode. And Stephen brought something up to us at the beginning of this episode, kind of related to the, well, I'll, I'll let you introduce it, Stephen, but it's a, a little bit of a rant, but we had a little a good discussion on it before we started. So we thought it would be a good topic for the podcast. So why don't you introduce your topic? Sure. First, get your drone off my lawn. <laughs> Crazy kids! It's, it's not on your lawn. Get over it. You it's can't. Above your it. lawn. <laughs> Get your drone out of my airspace. Right. <laughs> Is it your airspace, Stephen? Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, if, if it's not. if it's like within a couple meters, it's within Rux's airspace. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So and, and this is this is just a weird sort of thing. It's it's kind of uh, spurred on from the fact that I've been working on a lot of summarizing numbers for various projects that we've done at work. And, and I'm sure like all, all the archaeologists out there who've done this sort of thing, like y you'll totally know where I'm coming from because we have to submit uh, a number of different forms of, or formats of data to the government for review when, when we um, do our submission. And it, some of it's spatial data, some of it's uh, site forms, some of it's the, the report. Remember reports? You actually have to write mm -hmm. reports. And part of it is that we have to have counts, artifact counts, or site counts, or shovel test counts, or um, th there are a lot of numbers involved. And the way that we present it in spatial data, or the site forms, or the report, are not necessarily... I want to say gathered, but um, are not necessarily organized and structured in exactly the same way. So, you know, like one observation of uh, like a shovel test might be in one area, but then reassigned to a different area because you, you might break down under different boundaries um, for accounting for a different type of analysis. Like, you know, maybe it's uh, within the boundary of a site. So you break it down by site for one thing, and then you break it down by terrain type for a different thing. Or you know stuff like that. Likewise with artifacts, you, you have to you know provide like an aggregate number of artifacts, but then break it into like components and by material types, and then restructure it. And by the end of the whole exercise, a lot of times you will find that the numbers don't agree. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, well, this says there's thirty one thousand two hundred sixteen artifacts, and that says it's thirty one thousand two hundred eighteen artifacts. And it's like, where did I lose two artifacts? <laughs> right. And while I'm doing this and getting angry about having to do this, it, it occurs to me, um, thinking back to like uh, the the election, the presidential election in the U.S. and everything like that, is that most people out there, aside from archaeologists, don't really understand how hard it is to count things in very large numbers, especially if you have to recategorize them and, and kind of like shift those numbers around a bit. The idea that, well, you just have to count something once and that number is actually good and true. Like, I, I hope you're all laughing because um, we all know that's not true. But like, <laughs> right. you, you can count the same number of artifacts like five times and it, it'll, it'll just come up a little bit differently, um, especially once you start getting into large numbers, like you're dealing with like 50,000 artifacts or um, stuff like that. So I just kind of had this like ranty notion of like, why is it so hard to count? How, how do we convince people that it's actually hard to count? So I'll leave it there. Well, and I mean, I'm, I'll comment on that, of course. It, it is hard to count. And I think you have to... Well, for some things, you have to look at what your what your margin of error is, right? What was it? What is an acceptable margin of error? If you're counting lithic debitage and you've got tens of thousands of them, mm -hmm. does it really matter that much that you're five off? You know what I mean? Or even a hundred off for that matter? If you've got like fifty thousand right. of them, I mean, I mean, a lot of times, unless you're working in a work study program, you're not probably counting individual flakes by the 50,000s anyway. You're more than likely weighing them <laughs> and then extrapolating how many there probably right. are. Right. Yeah, because what are the what are the real questions you're trying to answer here? You know, obviously when it comes down to something like human votes, every vote counts. I mean, we have to say that because people don't want to feel like their vote doesn't count, but I mean, the reality is, yeah, every vote counts. I understand that, but 
man, margin of error. But we just can't do that with human votes, right? But we can do that with things like artifacts, obviously. There, there are so many things that can happen, you know, broken artifacts. I, I have a bag and, you know, somebody came over and like, how in the world can somebody put that there's one artifact in here when there's two? And unfortunately, <laughs> the artifact got broken. You know, now you have you have two. If you had just looked at it, it would fit together. But anyway, there's so many different things that can happen, especially when you have larger groups. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to remember that, you know, perfection can be the enemy of good. And right. we do have to get we have to get it done. We have to get this analysis done. And so sometimes, you know, a margin of error, there's margin of error in anything. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, people need to understand that. So when you get this like myopic view that everything has to be perfect, and I know I get it because I'm a very detail-oriented person and, and I do mm-hmm. like perfection, but I, you have to control that because uh, as we do want to have it as, as good as we possibly can, but we also want it done, right? Be so yes. that we can actually... Because it's not just the analysis comes after the count, really. So we mm-hmm. we can't do analysis without the count. So let's let's get it done. Get her done. <laughs> it's it's not that the number has to be correct; is that the numbers have to agree. So you can't say you have thirty two shovel tests over there in in one part of the report, and then say that you only did twenty eight in a different part of the report. Right. Now, and, that's and, Q-A-Q-C. And that's true. That's QAQC. I think. Well, it it is, and and, but but part of it is determining the path of. I'm going to say like authority for for the count. Like Mm -hmm. you you set you set that okay. It's this. This is the number. But the problem is is the that data, and and I'm sure Chris will understand this. Can come from a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. And and, you know this, this gets into the technology. I think technology actually does. Uh, greatly improve on this, but there's still like, you know, cataloging goes into one database, spatial data goes into a different database, and then you have to combine it. And then it gets, you know, transmogrified in some way, shape or form into a report that maintaining that level of authority over the data when you're restructuring it for your own, you know, analysis, that's, that's where things can go wrong. Right. Yeah, I Um, I agree. I think that's where, you know, the work ahead of time is really important. And that's where a good research design, a good work plan comes in. Mm-hmm. Obviously, on the back end, you have that QAQC of catching those little mistakes of numbers of STPs and whatever. But I think, you know, doing good work is the key to that is a good research design and a good work plan, period. Without that, everything falls yeah. apart or stays together based on that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I got to comment on data, but first, quick story. My wife and I worked for a company out of Reno, I mean, God, probably nine years ago now, nine or 10 years ago. And they had a company, they had a small satellite office in Phoenix, and I think it was set up to do this like one project out of some, I don't know, some kind of old hospital or something like that. But anyway, they collected thousands of like glass and ceramic artifacts, right? And these were all, I don't think any of it was ever analyzed in, I mean, it was all just collected in the field on the, at the project level, right? Put in bags and then put in like bankers boxes and it was never touched. Well, the lab for this company is up in Reno. So it was, I want to say between like Christmas and New Year's or around that time. So not the greatest weather to be driving to Phoenix and back. And they had us actually drive down there, though. And I don't I can't remember if we rented a trailer down there, like a small U-Haul or we or we took it down with us. But basically, we had a tiny little box trailer that you you can tow behind a truck and we towed it back. And I swear to God, I mean, on those roads between Phoenix and Reno, like every time we went over a bump, I'm pretty sure we doubled the artifacts every time. So I don't know what we started with, but we ended probably with a lot more. <laughs> I mean, it was oh, all glass and not very properly, properly stored. But a, a quick note on the data collection, though, and this would have helped that project. Your first source of error when you're trying to count something is going to be the first time somebody writes it down, right? So either they write down the wrong number, which there's not a whole lot you can do about that, unless it's artifacts and you can count them later, but they write down the wrong number or they write it, write it down in a way that can be misinterpreted, which is of course one of the most common problems with handwritten notes and handwritten artifact tags and, and artifact logs and things like that is somebody's five looks like somebody else's six or something like that, right? Or their nine looks like yeah. a four 
and they're off the project. They've been gone for two months. You're finally getting to the paperwork and you're like, what the heck is this? What was the original number? If you've only got, you know, four artifacts, you're like, well, it looks like a nine. So are there five missing or is it supposed to be actually a four? There's really no way to know. And, and to address the comment of the separate like databases, Stephen, you're, you're right now, like even if you're collecting digitally, a lot of people are collecting digitally, you know, on one device and then they're collecting their spatial data on like a Trimble where they might be writing notes down there too saying, well, I'm standing here and I'm recording, you know, a projectile point or a, or a collection of, you know, six flakes. Whereas the person who recorded that spot said there was only five flakes because they didn't see that sixth one or something like that. That's another source of error. And then your third source of error, as you said, is translation of all those data to the report. Maybe somebody typed it in wrong, something like that. I think the ultimate answer is something that can be kind of easy is use a data collection system that is also your spatial data collection system that we're getting closer and closer to with tablets and smartphones having submeter GPS capability mm-hmm. with external devices and a suite of different apps to help you do that kind of thing. But then also... Like we should we should be thinking what reports of not 10 years from now, but two or three or four years from now should look like. Should they really be 300 page monographs like it's 1971? Right. right? Or should it just be a data collection that is tied to a relational database? And you're not looking at a number in a paragraph. Nobody cares about that. You know, I mean, you're just it should all be tied together and we should be thinking of a new way to do reports. Yeah, I hate to tell you, but reports from 1971 are like 10 pages long yes, and they don't true. tell you where they dug and <laughs> there's like a picture of one point and right. that's that's a site and then it's right. like uh well, this is the least helpful report ever the pendulum has swung the other way because i actually just turned in i mean this was an extended phase one yeah 550 page report wow now that's with go. appendices appendices yeah. but the report itself is pretty long too and I try to keep them within, you know, a certain page count. But with what is expected, you know, some of these agencies, everybody's trying, it's all CYA, you know. And and so there's, you know, all these stipulations. But although then there are some agencies that have these templates that it's just you fill it in and you almost feel guilty. Like, wait a minute, like, I feel like this should be, I should tack on another 30 pages just to make this look legit. But if you look at the template, yeah. it has all the information that's inf- that's important there. And so, you know, I what you said, Chris, is like music to my ears. I absolutely believe that. <laughs> and in fact, you know, I've gotten to there are some times where, you know, you, we also have to look at, you know, at least in California, these information centers and all the data that they're tr- that they're having come in at, into them. And and then when you're getting your record search and you're looking through your reports and you're having to like go through <laughs> It's crazy report that's really long or, you know, EIRs, right? So now let's say you have an EIR and the archaeologist, and it's just a little pet peeve, the archaeologist actually put gives the entire EIR to the to the information center. And now in order to get that report, to get the crux of what you need to know, you now have mm-hmm. to buy the entire report, which is 25 <laughs> cents a page. And these things could be yeah. like 1,200 pages. You know, it's... It is, it's, a, it's absurd. So, you know, I've gotten to, oh yeah, for an EIR. Don't you send you a PDF? Yes, but they pay. I'm going to be all Chris right here. Yeah, um, in California, just- in California, that's funny you say Chris, because that's the name of the database, but <laughs> for California, but. As, as it is they, in lots of places. <laughs> yeah, it is 25 cents a page. Whether they're sending you the digital copy, that's how they make their money. So whether they're sending you the digital copy or you go in there and you get a you never you never get the printed copy anymore. So right, they're right. they're still charging you twenty five cents a page. So now you have to look at your record search. You know what your some assumed direct cost was that you put in your proposal, and can you really can you really do that? You know. So yeah, I think not only do we have to look at relook and and really try to be honing in on what's important, or maybe mm-hmm. you know, hey. I'm not I'm not even going to throw one more thing because right now, Chris and most of these information centers are three years behind (laughs) on anything that's been turned in. So when you get a record search, it's three, four years behind. But that would be nice to actually have an information. You know, I I put those in my reports, but to have a page that has all the important information and that's it. Yeah. 
Well, and here's a quick question for you. That 500 page report that you did, mm-hmm. how much of that report was not either cut and paste from the site records or boilerplate? You know what I mean? Like how much of that was true analysis yeah. on, on, on what was done? And you don't need to answer that question, right? Absolutely. I do think, you know, there are certain things that you do have to at, uh, include, you know, your background, your ethnography or ethnographic section, you know, you do need to include those things in your report in order to give your contact, you know, the re- your report some context, because we can't assume that everybody's reading the report understands that, understands the context of your investigation. Yeah. So some yeah. boilerplate is absolutely necessary. I absolutely agree. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I would say two thirds of reports yeah. are, are boilerplate. Yeah. Now, if we had... If we had a different way of of saving reports, a fully online way to view those reports, I mean, a lot of states have mm-hmm. their 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 site record logs, like their 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 online, uh, I guess, GIS in place, right? So we have that. We have that in a lot of different places, which is really nice to have. But I think we need to have that for our reports too, right? Like if I'm doing a report in some random valley in Nevada, the BLM is going to ask me to do a culture history of all the different places where we're going to be. And I got to go back as far back as I know, right? As far back as we have research for. But how many people have already done that? Can't I just say, well, this includes histories one, seven, and nine, and I'm going to make an update to nine that says recent research has shown this, right? And Mm -hmm. then you update the, the key database, like the agency's database that says, this is the new culture history for this area if it needs one, right? Like and then the same thing with the site page. records. Like yeah, a exactly. Continuation page on a site record. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And then you could take the the site records as well. You say, well, this report references site records this through this, and you just include the the hyperlinks to the things that you want. And really, your report comes down to you know ten to twenty pages of analysis that basically says, here's what we did, here's when we did it, here's mm-hmm. what we found, and here's what we think about it. You know, that's really what we should be doing. Instead, we're spending days and hours and tens of thousands of dollars on pulling together all this stuff that literally no one's going to read, nobody cares about, and is accessible in other places yep. and is already been done so yep Amen, all right brother yeah well <laughs> let's go change the world so Woo-hoo. yeah I, I mean if i made a new digital database and just called it chris because in california i think it's california heritage resource information system but in a lot of places it's cultural heritage resource right. information system so it's always chris it's always me right you need to stop making your you need to stop naming your products after yourself I know, right? Well, that's why I figure if I do make a product, you were so egocentric. I know if I do make a product like that, people will just naturally use it because they'll think it's the right thing. So there you go. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, that is (laughs) that's been a great episode. Three different topics. It's been fun. Uh, If you've got any topic suggestions like our commenter did today, please send them in. Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You can find other contact information at arcpodnet.com forward slash CRM arc podcast or comment wherever you saw this episode. And please, if you want to support us, arcpodnet.com slash members. If you want to advertise a job post on this podcast for your upcoming field season, please get in touch with Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You can, we can get your post in front of, you know, five to 7,000 people a month, which is pretty great. So, or at least five to 7,000 pairs of ears. They might be the same ones, multiple episodes, but they're hearing it multiple times. So, All right. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, everyone. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com.
Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.